Hey, everybody. It is Wednesday, June 21st. It's International Yoga Day today. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. We're going to help stretch you out, stretch out the news. I'm Mo Shwununu. <laughs> Namaste. Is that what it is? Namaste. As, as I was just bragging to you that I, <laughs> that I do yoga three to four times a week. Um, hello, everybody. I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And reread all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Uh, Jill, we'll be getting into it in a little bit later in this podcast, but the Indian prime minister is in New York, and he will be leading world leaders in a yoga session at the UN today. Moshe, it is also the summer solstice, which means it is the day of the year with the most amount of sunlight, at least in the northern hemisphere. Yes. Uh, so enjoy it, everybody. We don't want to send you off with any bad news, but it'll start to get gradually darker (laughs) from here on out in the north. For those of you in the southern hemisphere listening to this podcast, it'll only get lighter from here. I feel like we've been building up to this moment uh, for so long, Jill. It it goes by so quickly. (laughs) It does. So I was reading an article on Vox about the summer solstice, and uh, the way they put it is, if you are a fan of sunlight, wearing shorts, eating ice cream, and enjoying all summer has to offer, this is likely a big day for you. All right. So let's get started here so you guys can enjoy the sunlight. Okay, time for the headlines. The latest on the search for the missing Titanic tourist sub, as officials now think that the five people on board have just a few hours left of breathable air. On to politics. Hunter Biden will plead guilty in a deal that will likely prevent him from spending any time behind bars. It's the first day of summer, but we're already dealing with record three-digit heat across parts of the United States. As we were just talking about, India's prime minister has arrived in the United States for an official state visit. What's on the agenda besides for yoga? Why a group of young people, and we're talking as young as six years old, is suing the state of Montana. Some new details on that Spotify podcast breakup with Harry and Meghan. And if you can afford it, why buying a sports team could be the best investment these days. Some numbers on the Michael Jordan sale of the Charlotte Hornets. And Moshe's on this day in history. Jill, I bet you weren't expecting this, but today we'll tell you the history of the Ferris wheel. It's actually fairly fascinating. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the Ferris wheel, Moshe. Well, it turns out that many people back in 1893 were not either, Jill. And you're going to hear more <laughs> about it in today's podcast. <laughs> Okay, let's start with the latest on the search for that submersible that vanished on Sunday while carrying five people to the wreckage site of the Titanic. On Tuesday afternoon, the Coast Guard said that the vessel had about 40 hours of breathable air left. So if you're now listening to this podcast on Wednesday morning, it means there's less than 24 hours left. This is based on the 96-hour oxygen supply that the submersible had when it went out to sea at about 6 a.m. on Sunday which means it would run until that time on Thursday if everything is working. Although there are a lot of intangibles, including whether anyone is panicking inside that capsule, because that would mean that that person would use up air quicker. The Coast Guard Captain Jamie Frederick said that this is an incredibly complex operation. Rescue teams have searched about 7,600 square miles of the Atlantic Ocean. That's about the size of Connecticut. Notably, Frederick wouldn't say if crews could realistically rescue the five people on board. There's about 40 hours of of breathable air uh, left based on that initial report. Again, uh, that was just the initial report based on 96 hours uh, from when the vessel... um, Captain, even even with that amount of time that's left, let's say 41 hours or so, if you were to find 
the submersible at this moment, would that give you enough time to save these five people on board? Yeah, I, so, so I, I don't know the answer to that question. What I will tell you is we will do everything in our power to, uh, to effect a rescue. First, though, they need to locate the vessel. As part of this search, the U.S. and Canadian Coast Guards are using aircraft, boats and sonar equipment. A professor of marine engineering tells USA Today that if the submersible has gone down to the seabed and can't get back up under its own power, options are very limited. While the submersible could be intact, if it's beyond the continental shelf, there are very few vessels that could get that deep and certainly not divers. The submersible, as we talked about yesterday, is owned by Ocean Gate Explorations. That is a deep sea exploration company. The mothership, the Canadian research icebreaker Polar Prince, lost contact with the vessel about an hour and 45 minutes after it submerged. Yeah, so as we told you, the Titanic itself is located about two and a half miles deep in the North Atlantic. This is about 900 miles off the coast of Cape Cod. The New York Times did a story about the pressure at that depth, at two and a half miles deep. It's pretty hard to imagine, but they tried to describe it here. Water is almost a thousand times denser than air. So at the ship's resting place, if in fact the sub is down there near the Titanic, it would face pressures equal to those beneath a 100-story tower of solid lead. So that's the Empire State Building, if made of lead. That is the pressure you face and the pressure they had to ensure they were building that submersible to withstand. We're learning more about the five people on board. We now know all of their identities. The Coast Guard said it was one pilot and four mission specialists. It appears that the Ocean Gate founder, Stockton Rush, was piloting this craft, according to an article a couple years ago. Apparently, he goes on all of the adventures down there. They have taken about a couple dozen people down to the Titanic. They've launched 50 different missions, though they have had to cancel a lot in the past. We'll get into that in a second. So the mission specialists are the name they give the uh, guests who come and pay the $250,000 price for a ticket. Among those aboard, so you have Stockton Rush, that is one. Then you have a French explorer named Paul-Henri Narjolet. He's a Titanic expert who's made many expeditions down there, uh, and he was aboard as well. Then you have a father-son duo from Pakistan, from one of the most prominent families in the country. Shazada Daoud and his son Suleiman. The family is known for investments in agriculture, industry, and the health sector. His son Suleiman, just 19 years old. And as we reported yesterday, you have British billionaire and explorer Hamish Harding aboard. He lives in Dubai, uh, is involved in aviation. He's also an adventurer, Hamish is, who holds three Guinness World Records, including the longest duration at a full ocean depth by a crewed vessel. He also goes to outer space. Last year, he was part of the Blue Origin New Shepard rocket. That is uh, Jeff Bezos's space program. So Hamish also went into space. Incidentally, the last time he went super deep into the Marianas Trench, that is one of the deepest points in the ocean in the world, seven miles deep, to give you perspective. Again, we're talking about the Titanic, two and a half miles deep. Uh, the Marianas Trench, seven miles deep. He did an interview around that adventure a couple of years ago. And he admitted in that interview, if something goes wrong, you're not coming back. So it appears Hamish knew the consequences here and knew the risks. Uh, Jill, something that's getting a lot of attention is a story CBS News did uh, for Sunday morning, CBS Sunday morning, late in 2022. The reporter was David Pogue. And we should say things did not go swimmingly uh, on their trip uh, to the point where David Pogue was pointing out issues 
to the founder, Stockton Rush. Again, Stockton is on board here. Here's a clip of David Pogue uh, talking about his experience uh, with the Titan and interviewing Stockton Rush. And yet I couldn't help noticing how many pieces of this sub seemed improvised. We can use these off the shelf components. I got these from uh, Camper World. We run the whole thing with this game controller. <laughs> Come on! It seems like this submersible has some elements of MacGyvery jerry rigness. I mean, you're putting construction pipes as ballast. I don't know if I'd use that description of it, um, but there's certain things that you want to be uh, buttoned down. So the pressure vessel is not MacGyvered at all because that's where we work with Boeing and NASA and the University of Washington. Everything else can fail. Your thrusters can go, your lights can go, you're still gonna be safe. Jill, the story's gone viral. Pogue points out all the various issues. You know, they went down in there, they couldn't navigate, they had to come back up. They went in there, they had other issues. They had to come back up. Uh, eventually, they were successful in going down to the Titanic, but Pogue's experience uh, both pointing out that some of the stuff appeared to be jerry-rigged together, uh, that there were questions as to, you know, this guy was buying stuff at the hardware store to make part of the submersible. Despite that, Stockton was reassuring him that it is safe, etc. that the important parts are tested here. But it does come as the New York Times reporting this week that there was a letter sent to OceanGate by a whole bunch of other explorers in recent years saying they had concerns about the way that OceanGate was building this craft. They had not received third-party certifications. Uh, and so you're seeing a lot of this now come out, uh, given this incident. You've got to think that the CEO thought that it was safe, given that he he's on board. He's on board. He's had a number of successful missions. Uh, until now, they have canceled missions where something you know didn't go right. Uh, clearly here, you had experienced uh, travelers, including the French traveler we mentioned, Hamish Harding, who's you know gone to the far reaches of, of space and um, undersea here. Uh, but again, we don't know what went wrong here, but that's not going to stop people who had issues, had doubts, uh, had concerns about this organization, about the submersible from, uh, you know, voicing those now. All right, switching gears, let's talk a little politics. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, has reached a tentative plea agreement with federal prosecutors that will likely keep him out of jail. He is expected to plead guilty to two federal misdemeanor counts of failing to pay his taxes. He's also facing a separate gun possession charge that will likely be dismissed if he meets certain conditions. So let's start with the tax offenses. They date back to 2017 and 2018. Court documents says that Biden failed to pay more than $100,000 in taxes on over $1.5 million in income. These charges carry a maximum penalty of a year in prison. Biden's representatives have previously said that he eventually paid the IRS whatever he had owed. He is expected again to plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges. Now, as for the gun charge, Prosecutors had charged him with possessing a firearm while being a user of illegal drugs, which is technically a felony. But they have reportedly agreed to dismiss that charge if he completes a two year period of probation. This also dates back to 2018. According to his own autobiography, Hunter Biden was regularly abusing crack cocaine during that time. But when he filled out paperwork to buy the gun, he said that he didn't have a drug problem. Biden 
only owned the gun for about two weeks because his then girlfriend threw it away. And although Hunter Biden's attorney saying this deal means that the five year criminal investigation involving the president's son, quote, is resolved. However, the lead prosecutor on the case, Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, says the investigation is ongoing. Yeah, he made a point, very terse statement from Weiss saying he's continuing here. Keep in mind, Weiss was nominated by former President Trump back in 2018. The Biden White House made a point. Typically, you fire all the U.S. attorneys and appoint your own. They made a point of keeping Weiss here because of the sensitive investigation. They didn't want President Biden to appoint a U.S. attorney to oversee the investigation into his own son. They wanted to make a point of uh, keeping the Trump person in place. And it appears here Weiss says he's continuing the investigation, which uh, I imagine uh, makes Republicans happy here because they've been very critical of this announcement. And so far, what we've learned does not resolve issues related to Hunter Biden's business dealings with companies in China and Ukraine. So you may have heard a lot of talk about a company called Burisma. It's a Ukrainian energy company that Hunter Biden sat on the board of while his dad, Joe, was vice president. And there are questions as to, A, why Hunter was sitting on a Ukrainian energy company with no experience in the matter and getting paid a whole bunch of money. And there have been allegations through the years that he was paid inappropriately to lobby his father on the company's behalf. And so one of the issues was that the company didn't like this prosecutor named Viktor Shokin in Ukraine. This was a prosecutor that actually a number of Western countries and Joe Biden as VP had an issue with due to corruption. That said, Burisma, also not a fan of his. And so there are questions as to, was Biden actually uh, lobbying on his son's behalf in trying to get this prosecutor out on behalf of Burisma? And was he paid money for it? There are allegations that both Joe and Hunter were paid millions here. No evidence of this, just accusations. But this investigation continues, and a number of Republicans have been repeating this as a mantra for a long time. You actually had the former attorney general under Trump, Bill Barr, on Fox News on Tuesday saying it's even more critical now that there's this plea deal for part of Hunter's uh, gun and tax charges. It's even more critical that the FBI, the DOJ, release all the documents they have related to Burisma in Ukraine uh, to show that there is not a uh, special treatment being given to Hunter Biden here. Yeah, as you mentioned, the Republicans really critical of this deal. Speaker Kevin McCarthy said America has a two tier justice system. And regardless of this plea agreement, McCarthy has promised to intensify congressional investigations into the Biden family. And then there's former President Trump himself facing 37 federal charges related to classified documents. He likened the agreement to a, quote, mere traffic ticket. He wrote on Truth Social, our system is broken. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, another person challenging Trump, he called this a sweetheart deal. Meanwhile, the White House simply saying that the president and First Lady Jill Biden, quote, love their son and support him as he continues to rebuild his life, which I do think is interesting because the Bidens really have not throughout this whole process uh, distanced themselves at all from Hunter. No, you saw a bit of that during the campaign in 2020, but not so much in the White House. Uh, Jill, incidentally, you know, listening to all that, people should keep in mind that there was various attorneys for Trump in the past few months who've been telling the former president to cut a deal with Jack Smith, the special prosecutor in classified documents. Trump has chosen not to cut a deal there. So, again, it's unclear what that deal could have been, but he didn't even choose to 
pursue that. So there's just something people should keep in mind that typically in these high level white collar crimes, there is room for deals, but that typically means you do need to plead guilty. So this is not, as we mentioned, the end of investigations for Hunter Biden. Uh, Republican Congressman James Comer, uh, he is the chairman of the Oversight Committee on the House side where Republicans have the majority. He called the charges a slap on the wrist and said, we will not rest until the full extent of President Biden's involvement in the family schemes are revealed. He's been looking for evidence of wrongdoing by the president in this inquiry, but so far has failed to unearth any. And that's something that a number of Republicans on the Senate and House side have admitted so far. They have no evidence of President Biden's involvement in anything unethical or illegal here while he was vice president. But that isn't stopping them from continuing to pursue that investigation, uh, especially as many are very close to Trump and want uh, to be able to uh, throw sand in the gears of the president as he runs for re-election so they can say, yeah, we, uh, you know, at the same time, former President Trump has X happening, but look what's happening over at the White House. So uh, the investigations will continue. And if you peruse conservative media today, there's some celebratory laps uh, happening over the New York Post, Fox News, uh, a whole bunch of publications, and this earnest belief that they feel that uh, there is special treatment with this plea deal being given to the president's son. Uh, again, David Weiss, the U.S. attorney, the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, appears to say here that he will be continuing his investigation as well. All right, we've got a lot more to get to, but we do want to thank our sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. We're always talking about health trends and food trends here on the podcast, and it is hard to get all of your nutrients. Well, one way to get all the important ones is Athletic Greens AG1 powder. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It is easy, quick, and lets you get on with your day, knowing that you have gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit drinkag1.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You get a discounted monthly subscription, or you can try it one time for just a month. Again, that is drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. All right, time now for the speed read. It is the first day of summer, and already the heat is on across the country. From the Associated Press, Texas's power grid operator asking residents Tuesday to voluntarily cut back on electricity because of an anticipated record demand on the system as a heat wave kept large swaths of the state and southern United States in triple-digit temperatures. On the last day of spring, the sweltering heat felt more like the middle of summer across the South. Patience was growing thin over outages that have now persisted since weekend storms and tornadoes caused widespread damage. In Mississippi, in the capital, some residents said that they had been without power and air conditioning for almost 100 hours. And that is longer than the outages that were caused by Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. Nearly 10% of the country, Jill, 37 million people from Oklahoma and Texas in the Southern Plains to Louisiana, Mississippi, as you said, in the Gulf Coast, remained under heat alerts overnight. Jill, the feels like temperatures have been making things feel even worse. The feels like has been more than 120 degrees in certain areas of Texas. The triple digit temperatures will remain in place for at least another 24 to 36 hours in portions of Texas. 
Now, when it comes to the power grid here, many Texans have been skeptical of the state's grid since that deadly 2021 ice storm that knocked out power to millions for days. The governor there in Texas has said improvements have been made to the grid to make them more stable. Over in neighboring Oklahoma, more than 100,000 people have been awaiting the restoration of power and AC following weekend storms that downed trees and snapped hundreds of utility poles over there. Officials say at least one person in Oklahoma has died because of prolonged outages. Jill, many people don't know this, but heat is one of the leading weather killers uh, every year in the U.S. From The Guardian, a groundbreaking climate trial came to an early close in Montana on Tuesday as lawyers on each side presented a very different picture of who can be held responsible for the climate crisis. Attorneys representing the lawsuit's young challengers said that Montana officials and agencies must be held accountable for exacerbating the crisis and thereby violating the plaintiff's state constitutional rights. The defense, though, arguing that climate change is a global problem and that if Montana is contributing to it, plaintiffs should work to change that through the legislature. The trial for Held versus Montana marks the first constitutional climate trial in U.S. history. The case was filed in March of 2020 by 16 young Montana residents, then aged 2 through 18. They allege that the state government's pro-fossil fuel policies contribute to climate change and thereby violate provisions in the state constitution that guarantee that the, quote, state and each person shall maintain and improve a clean and healthful environment in Montana for present and future generations. Jill, this has been an interesting trial to watch. We're now awaiting a ruling from the judge there who's been hearing the case. It could take a couple weeks uh, for the ruling to come out. The lawsuit here specifically targets a state law that prevents the state from considering how its energy economy may contribute to climate change. Back in 2011, the state legislature in Montana amended the law to prevent environmental reviews from considering regional, national, or global environmental impact. So you have these plaintiffs, who, by the way, are now ages 5 to 22. They say they're being harmed by wildfire smoke, excessive heat, other effects of climate change here. They're asking a judge to declare unconstitutional that state law that prevents the state from considering greenhouse gases uh, and climate change when it comes to policies. From Reuters, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi arrived in the United States Tuesday for a state visit that's been projected as a major opportunity for the two countries to deepen and diversify their partnership. Modi's been to the U.S. five times since becoming prime minister in 2014, but his visit this week that runs until Saturday will be his first with the full diplomatic status of a state visit. Modi arrived in New York on Tuesday. He had business meetings and will mark the International Day of Yoga at the United Nations before heading to Washington. He has a private dinner scheduled with President Biden tonight, followed by talks at the White House and a state dinner on Thursday. So this visit is expected to see the two countries expand cooperation on defense issues, high tech, uh, and India gets access to critical American tech which we rarely share with non-allies, but the U.S. sees it as vital. They see India as a hedge against China and that part of the world. Uh, Modi also had a meeting with Elon Musk. Electric cars are going to be huge for India, and it's 1.4 billion people. India is a huge polluter, so they are looking at uh, some new clean energy, and certainly Tesla looking to get into the Indian market. Jill, we've mentioned it's International Yoga Day. Uh, nine years ago, Modi was actually the person who lobbied the UN to designate June 21st 
International Yoga Day. He will be leading the UN in a yoga session today. Jill, I'll have to check if I can get a press pass and head down there to see how that works <laughs> out. But he is known for his passion for yoga. Uh, and there's been a number of articles out there that you can Google and check out. You know, I was reading a little bit about this um, just to prep for the podcast. And I love this quote from a 61-year-old yoga instructor in India's capital of New Delhi. Uh, he says that this is going to be, quote, India's contribution to the world, referring, of course, to yoga. And I have to say, um, I have been doing yoga just on a personal note. I have been doing it about three to four times a week, not long classes, but just you know, 20 minutes here and there actually on my Peloton app. And I have to say, I feel so much better after I do it. I totally agree. It's great. By the way, there's all these types of yoga, right? Some people like the vinyasa. Some people like, you know, there's more stretchy yoga. I mean, there's a whole bunch of various uh, types of yoga you can do. I know uh, Alex, my my wife, while she's been pregnant, has been swearing by yoga as uh, really helping her uh, remain fit through it all. Though even before she was pregnant, we'd go to yoga. Even actually when we were dating, we went to yoga. So um, big, big fan. <laughs> and uh, rest assured, if I can get over to the UN today, I'll, I'll head down there and uh, check out that session. But on a serious note, uh, there are a number of issues that he's here to discuss when he gets to Washington. One of the big issues has been India's unwillingness to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, essentially playing both sides here. In fact, when Europe and the U.S. stopped buying uh, Russian energy, India was like, sure, we'll buy some of yours. We have 1.4 billion people. So there have been issues, divides, you can say, between the U.S. and India, especially over the last year. Uh, dozens of Democrats have been telling President Biden to raise human rights with Modi while he's here. Uh, issues related to religious intolerance for Muslims there, uh, press freedoms, internet access limitations in India, and the targeting of civil society groups. At the same time, the U.S. does see India, we've discussed, as a, a strong regional ally, especially with China in that region. Uh, U.S. lawmakers have also invited Modi to address a joint session of Congress. So look out for that. It'll be Modi's second address, and that's a rare honor for a foreign leader. Only a handful typically get to address Congress. And a bit of podcasting news now from Pod News. We learned this week that Archiewell, the podcast company owned by Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, will not have its contract renewed with Spotify. The decision was mutual, according to a statement. However, speaking on his podcast, Bill Simmons, who is a senior Spotify podcast executive, called them effing grifters. Meghan Markle's podcast produced just 12 episodes in a $20 million contract. The Wall Street Journal suggests that she may not actually earn the full amount after not meeting productivity clauses. Pod News has heard from multiple sources that some of her interviews on the show were actually done by other staffers, and then her questions were edited in afterwards. Mosh, you actually texted me about this yesterday, and I, I actually let out like a <gasps> like a gasp, because not that they're journalists, but that is such a big no-no. Well, especially if you've only done 12 episodes, like you should at least do those interviews. But again, this is pod news, multiple sources. You know, we're waiting to hear the full so story here. But there are definitely major complaints internally about the way they conduct themselves uh, and a variety of reasons here for the end of this contract. And we should also note that the Archetypes podcast, which was hosted by Megan, it had conversations with friends and celebrities of hers like Serena Williams and Trevor Noah. 
It topped the podcast charts for Spotify in a number of markets, but again, only 12 episodes were made. So Spotify's deals with Harry and Meghan were part of a huge company expansion into podcasting after their massive deal with Joe Rogan and the success they saw there. They saw an opportunity, Spotify did, in building these original podcasts. However, they are facing massive investor pressure now to improve their performance after losing hundreds of millions of dollars on podcasting and writ large in the last couple of years. Earlier this year, the chief executive at Spotify, Daniel Eck, admitted that the company had made some mistakes with the $1 billion they spent in their push to establish itself as a key player in podcasting. Earlier this month, Spotify announced it was making 200 job cuts in the podcasting business. They also had a big deal with the Obamas, Michelle and Barack, that they ended recently. Uh, there were complaints there that Barack Obama, Michelle Obama also didn't produce as many shows as they wanted, that the Obamas were interested in producing other people's shows, lifting up new voices, while Spotify wanted as many interviews and as many shows as possible with Barack and Michelle themselves. Jill, it's interesting, and this is just anecdotal here, but I'll share this with our audience since they're listening. Uh, when you break down the Mo News numbers, uh, right now, about 70%-ish of our audience listens on Apple and about 20% listen on Spotify. So Spotify has made this huge push to try to break through here on podcasting. They are seeing some progress, but clearly not enough here. And there's a larger recalibration. So when we talk about this Harry Megan story, certainly it appears there were specific issues with their contract, with their situation, but it's all part of a larger recalibration in the podcast industry after this huge investment in recent years. So I thought you were going to say, Bill Simmons, Spotify, if you guys are listening, if you want two workhorses who actually <laughs> put in the work Jill, and do are, their own interviews, Jill, Jill, there, are weeks, recommend. there are weeks where we might put together 12 episodes. Just to say, I, I, I appreciate you reminding me of this. Okay, so Bill Simmons, <laughs> Daniel Eck, if you're listening to us, we just want you to know. That we will do 12 episodes a week if you give us uh, how much? How big was this deal? $20 million. For $20 million, how many episodes would you put out, Jill? Uh, 12 a day. 12 Moshe. a day, Jill says. She will do hourly <laughs> updates on the news. All right, Moshe. Axios running the numbers on major sports team sales in the last couple of years. And this comes as we learned this weekend that Michael Jordan is selling his majority stake in the Charlotte Hornets NBA team at a $3 billion valuation. That is the seventh most expensive sale price ever for a sports franchise. Six of the seven richest sales have come in the past 13 months. Jordan's going to be keeping a minority stake in the team once the deal is finalized. He sold to a group that included the minority owner of the Hornets and also the Atlanta Hawks. Jordan is widely considered, of course, the best player in NBA history in his lifetime. <laughs> Amen. Yes, as a as, Chicago native. As a Chicago native of the 90s, yes. Though, Jill, the people do make the Kobe-LeBron argument against Michael, but we can have that another time. Back to Jordan, though. His lifetime NBA salary, $93.9 million, pales in comparison to what he made elsewhere, bringing in about $4 billion between his Nike earnings and the Hornets sale. In 13 years as an owner, Jordan's Hornets had four winning seasons and played in just 15 playoff games, including three first-round series losses. Yeah, the Hornets, not a great team, Jill, but apparently still worth $3 billion. By the way, incredible investment by Jordan. He's 10 x his initial purchase. He initially bought this portion of the Hornets for $275 million. 
sold it for $3 billion. So it is further proof that if you can get into the sports ownership game, it's about the best investment that you can have. Jill, uh, you noted the recent sales that uh, six of seven of the biggest sports sales in history have just happened in the past year. That includes the Washington Commanders football team, $6 billion, the Denver Broncos, $4.6 billion, the Phoenix Suns, $4 billion. You also had the Bucks in Milwaukee that recently went for $3.2 billion. Though notably, uh, for a league where the players are majority black, Jill, now that he's out as a majority owner, the NBA will have zero black majority owners uh, going into next season. All right, now time for On This Day in History. On this day in 1788, the U.S. Constitution was ratified. New Hampshire, on this date, became the ninth and last necessary uh, state uh, to ratify the document that would become the law of the land. You might know there's governors out there, but initially... <laughs> I like that. I well, that's, that. Uh, that's what Sharon says. So Sharon McMahon calls her people. They call themselves governors. I love it. They would know that we initially had a document called the Articles of Confederation. That was our initial organizing document. It didn't quite work, though. And so then they had to go back to the drawing board, so to speak, and draw up the U.S. Constitution ratified today in 1788. All right, we're going to fast forward to the 19th century, Jill. 130 years ago today, the first Ferris wheel invented by George Washington Gale Ferris Jr., a Pittsburgh-based engineer, made its debut at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Those of you who are readers might know this uh, from Devil in the White City. The World's Columbian Exposition was the big rollout for Chicago uh, post-fire. And Chicago had it the year after Paris, the World's Fair, that is. The year before that, Paris had rolled out the Eiffel Tower at their World's Fair. So Chicago was trying to figure out what it could do to try to compete with the Eiffel Tower. So a young engineer from Pittsburgh says, I have an idea. I call it my Ferris wheel. Okay, George Washington, Gail Ferris. So he puts together this wheel, 100,000 parts, an 89,000-pound axle. It had to be hoisted onto two towers, 140 feet in the air, and it was launched on this day 130 years ago. Uh, it, you had several months to ride Ferris's first and what would become his only Ferris wheel. 1.4 million people rode on the Ferris wheel. It was 50 cents. It was a 20-minute ride. Wait, 20 minutes? It was a 20-minute, I mean, <laughs> 50 cents in 1893, Jill. You really had to go to the bank for that sort of money. I just feel like 20 minutes is a long time. Certainly, they've shortened the Ferris wheel rides since then. But what is notable here about Ferris is that this was his one and only wheel because he then becomes immersed in a whole bunch of lawsuits related to the debt that he owed suppliers that helped him build this Ferris wheel at 100,000 parts, I mentioned. So just a couple years later, it's 1896, he's bankrupt, he gets typhoid fever and dies at the age of 37. Then to help collect on his debt, they scrapped the first and only Ferris wheel. Hence, it was the only Ferris wheel built by young Ferris. Years later, the only Ferris we know in Chicago is Ferris Bueller for taking his day <laughs> off in Chicago. But of course, that wheel was enough. And to this day, you, it's hard to go to a carnival without seeing a Ferris wheel. All right, well, quickly here, we want to wish a happy birthday to Prince William, who turns 41 today. Uh, Jill, uh, he's in my class. He's just a month younger than me, it turns out. Uh, but one thing we don't share in common, he's first in line for the crown. <laughs> uh, so one day the Prince of Wales will be replacing his father, King Charles, as the next King of England, if all works out. 
On this day in 1997, the WNBA debuted, playing in the first game where the New York Liberty and LA Sparks. A little pop culture history here for you. 21 years ago today, Minority Report, starring Tom Cruise, premiered in theaters. I only mention that because if you watch Minority Report today, some of the things that felt so futuristic, you know, walking by signs that speak to you, uh, stores that know who you are as you come in, that's reality today. And finally... On this day in 1976, that is Elton John and Kiki D with Don't Go Breaking My Heart. It was released today in the U.S. and Britain. Jill, are you ready to try the duet ourselves? <laughs> Don't go breaking my... No, I, actually, no. As I start to sing, I'm going to pass, Mosh. All right, listen. We'll let, we'll let Elton and Kiki <laughs> uh, handle, uh, handle the singing requirements today. Elton John, though, still going strong. Still on yeah, tour. he's had like approximately 155 Goodbye Yellow Brick Road tours. And he's <laughs> never quite said goodbye to the Yellow Brick Road. <laughs> but speaking of goodbyes, Mosh, it is time to say goodbye for at least today. And thank everybody for listening to the Mo News Podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. Yeah, that's really important, actually. If you don't already follow us on your podcasting app, please do that. And if you can, leave us a review. Those reviews matter, so we so appreciate that. All of you who have joined the Mo News team in the past couple days over at Mo News Premium, so grateful for all of you. You can do that over at mo.news slash premium. Uh, Jill has a big interview coming out this week on all allergy-related matters that I think you'll find really interesting. They'll be going to the members-only uh, podcast. Also, uh, we're doing more Q&As over on the members-only Instagram account. Jill, waiting for more of your content on the members-only Instagram account. I know, Moshe. I promise I'm going to step it up. As I said, it has been, and I think parents of young kids might be able to relate, it has been just a crazy week because this is this weird time between school and camp. Uh, for a lot of kids. Excuses, so, excuses, um, excuses. Yes, I can't I wait. <laughs> I can't wait for Alex to go to camp and all the content that'll be coming our way in the coming weeks. <laughs> oh, you just wait. <laughs> oh, you just wait. All right, everyone. I'll see you later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.